Good evening, everybody in Alberta, Canada, and beyond. It is Wednesday, February 15th, 2023, and I'm Carrie Lambert, and I welcome you to an online webinar evening of solutions for New Alberta, brought to you by the Alberta Prosperity Project, also known as APP. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and unite all Albertans, businesses, and organizations to protect their prosperity, individual freedoms, rights, and sovereignty by empowering the Alberta government to restructure Alberta's relationship with Canada. Of course, we couldn't do this without your help. If this is your first time watching, welcome, and I hope you find this information engaging and wanting to find out more. And if you're a regular APP webinar viewer, thank you for your support. We couldn't do this without you. APP is membership driven with a goal of a million plus members to help steer the political process. APP memberships are $20 for one year, $30 for two years, and $40 for three years, and you can get that at albertaprosperityproject.com. So tonight's webinar, is entitled Lockdowns, the door opener for the fourth industrial revolution and 15 minute cities with our guest presenter, Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. Uh, and this is a live webinar. So we encourage you to ask questions and make comments throughout this presentation. And in order to do that, just put uh, three question marks before your question. So it's easier to flag when we're going through the uh, comments. So at this time, I will bring Michelle on. Hello, Michelle. Hello. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for having you? me on the show, Carrie. Awesome. Excellent. So Michelle's actually done uh, a few webinars for Alberta Prosperity Project. One was uh, called The Tipping Point, and uh, it was about the tar sands and uh, and all the the dirty oil and and all that. And then um, and basically it was it was uh, I guess saying that CBC was uh, ill quoted on the, on the whole documentary uh, on what yes. they did. And then you also did another one. It was uh, called Cruel and Unusual Punishment, and it was about climate change, and it was a rebuttal, again, to more misinformation, or at least uh, uh, trying to, to, to set the record straight on, on what's actually happening with climate change. So Yes, and um, challenging the federal government's uh, healthy economy, healthy environment yeah, plan. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So today, of course, we're, we are talking about lockdowns and uh, the fourth industrial revolution. And the buzzword that has certainly been on at least for the last week or two are these 15-minute cities, right? So uh, I, I, I'll just quickly go through uh, Michelle's little bio here. Um, she is short. Um, it. <laughs> it is short. It's it's fairly short. Um, she's with Friends of Science. Uh, she is the top ten downloaded author uh, for several weeks on SSRN. What is as science? Social Science Research Network. There you go. Perfect. Uh, she's a member of the Canadian Association of Journalists. Uh, she does freelance uh, op and uh, contributor blogger throughout things, uh, script writer, you're a public speaker, author, we just said that, uh, <laughs> business value, you're, you're like a renaissance woman. That's what you well. are. And renaissance <laughs> woman in science for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, you've got, you've got lots of, um, uh, well, lots of uh, experience and in, in, in talking and researching. So again, thank you so much for coming on. So let's, uh, let's, how do you want to start this? Like, because I mean, it's such a it's such a broad subject. Do you want to do a little bit of a, a talk before? Or do you want to just jump right into your presentation? Because I know you've got some slides that you want to show. 
Well, I think that we should probably jump in because I do have quite a lot of slides and okay, I'm pulling okay. together a lot of different angles on this. Okay. So it's not just hammering away on either lockdowns or 15 minute cities or the fourth industrial revolution. Okay. I'm trying to synthesize yeah. different aspects of this and show how the climate theme, you know, yeah. ties them together, but okay. drives other forces in the market. Okay, let's do that then. So. I'm actually pulling double duty today. So not only am I doing the host thing, but uh, the, uh, the the girl that usually sets this stuff up and, and does that is off on a va vacation. So hi, Shauna. I'm sure she's watching right now. So hopefully, hopefully everything works so well. And yes, you will definitely have fun. So let's uh, let's present that. There you are. So yes, there Perfect. I am. Okay. So. Uh, away we go. So uh, lockdowns, the fourth, the door or opener for the fourth industrial revolution and 15 minute cities. Now, let's see what I mean by that. Oops. Let's see if we can get the PowerPoint going. One moment. Okay. Okay. Um, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Um, one of the things we should be concerned about is the new abnormal, which is the rise of the biomedical security state. And I'm not the only person concerned about this. The more important person is Erin Cariati, who is a um, psychiatrist in the U.S. and a medical ethicist. And his book gives us a lot of insights. I'll be referring to a few of them tonight. Okay. So first of all, there's a confluence of very big events that no one's really talking about. And these are um, complicating some of the other issues related to climate change and economic development, e even here in Alberta. So there is a global economic collapse in process. Mm -hmm. The mass boomer retirement and their health costs will be affecting all of us. Mm -hmm. There are collapsing demographics worldwide especially in China, mm -hmm. in North America, in OECD countries, which will mean a loss of the workforce and certain critical skills and the loss of community volunteers. Mm. Um, I'll get into the pension liabilities and an IMF report later. And uh, this book by Peter Zahan is quite enlightening. So uh, there are many problems facing us and there, we're likely facing um, CBDCs, digital currencies. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So climate change is a handy rationale for 15-minute cities. Um, but in fact, the alleged climate emergency is based on outdated science and the misuse of a scenario called RCP 8.5. Um, urban planners hate cars. They hate parking for cars, roads, and your messy freedoms. And climate activists want a wartime command economy they like that idea of rationing. And there's also the rise of the biomedical security state, which COVID and lockdowns tested and conditioned us. Mm -hmm. Now, climate, climate change theory failed the test, but lockdowns and mandates successfully conditioned the public for 15-minute living. And also, surveillance and big data was gathered without normal privacy considerations and the use of biomedical authority created a new abnormal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So this leads us to the fourth industrial revolution because big tech has the digital solutions for the problems created by lockdowns just waiting for you. No. And we, the people, were just never really consulted about them. So all of, almost all of these solutions are driven by the unsubstantiated need to reduce GHG emissions. And some of these ideas are helpful, but um, that some are just part of a sophisticated marketing scheme, which is inherent in climate ideologies, such as flying cars and drones. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, implementing most of them will lead to a biomedical security state. So if we jump back to 1989, we find that Bill McGibbon had a vision of the future, which was that Americans would rarely travel We'd experience the world through the internet. We'd grow our own food, power our communities with solar and wind, and divert our wealth to developing countries. And then we would be setting a moral example for China um, and that these countries would accept a grand bargain toward cleaner energy. So that sounds like lockdown to me. Mm -hmm. And we have to ask ourselves, have we already had? climate lockdowns, because a lot of the concern with 15-minute cities is that they would um, offer a platform for climate lockdowns. But let's look and see. I think we already had climate lockdowns. I'm going to go through a timeline here, so follow the years uh, and the dates. Oh, yeah, okay. 2015, the Paris Accord uh, was created. Um, and uh, Ivo de Boer, who was the executive secretary of the UN, Framework Convention on Climate Change, the political climate body said, mm -hmm. the only way that a 2015 agreement can achieve a two degree goal is to shut down the entire global economy. And uh, the World Economic Forum gained Swiss host state status on December the 11th, 2015 and December the 12th, 2015, the Paris Agreement was signed. Now, that host state status is kind of like granting them um, a presence like the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. They were recognized sort of as a global, not just a global think tank, but like a global body like the Red Cross. And they um, also acquired some diplomatic immunities with that. Here we are, 2016, a report was issued called Deadline 2020. And this was for the Global C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group, which is about um, 100 cities uh, with about 700 million citizens as of today. Um, and these are some of the larger cities in the world. And they were all pulled together mostly by Michael Bloomberg, I think, as a lead figure. And they were told in this report, which was just written by this consulting group, by the way, it's not like people, elected officials develop this. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, that cities need to reduce their emissions uh, from an annual average of above five tons CO2e per citizen to about 2.9. Now, you know, just for context, um, Canadians use about 17 tons CO2. I was just going to ask, wow. Yeah, so, you know, that's a pretty dramatic reduction. And here's their pie-in-the-sky ideal, that they would be able to drop uh, per capita emissions within cities, yeah. ultimately to zero by 2050. So, uh, you know, most cities are designed around cars and mobilities. Cars require roads, 
maintenance and parking and cars and transportation emit large amounts of GHGs and so does consumption of goods. And um, urban planners especially hate short car trips. Mm -hmm. uh, so to lower emissions, of course, cities must limit car transportation and personal consumption and lockdowns did both. And I just saw another webinar the other day and this fellow said that there are now 400 companies trying to develop flying cars. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and mobility is 38% of the global emissions. And he said that it's a $10 trillion opportunity. So, so you it, can see that. Yeah. Yes. If they want to drop this down to like three, three tons uh, per person. So what, what kind of makes, just to give a context, what is roughly say one ton? Is it uh, um, driving in your car for a week or a month or do you know? You know, that's a good question. I should have yeah. looked that up before this. I think but if you think it's 17 tons per capita per yeah. Yeah. person yeah. Per in, in Canada, yeah, you know, it gives you a sense that you really have to be yeah. near, uh, near the knuckle. Basically, just think of it as driving around in your car for one month could be, say, one ton. And then, you know, so 12 tons for driving for 12 months. Uh, yes. You know? Yeah, it would be a broader scope than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but I oh. had heard it's roughly half a ton to fly from Canada to Europe and back, I guess, is what it is. So, you know, if, if you're limited to only having three tons, that really means you may only be able to make one trip a year. That's if you can even get out of your 15-minute your city. But we'll talk a little bit more about that, too. Yeah. Right. And uh, Darshan Maharaja did the math for us on the oh. idea of the Century Initiative, because while the government of Canada is asking everybody to cut emissions and forcing industries and individuals to cut emissions uh, through the carbon tax and through other measures, yeah. they're also bringing in 400,000 people a year. And so uh, they want to up the population of Canada to 100 million by 2100 in the Century Initiative. Wow. And you can see that, of course, um, we will never, ever meet any climate targets if we keep bringing in immigrants. Yeah. And that's not a comment on immigrants. It's yeah. a comment on carbon footprints. Yeah, that's true. So now September 2019, this came out. It's a very long PowerPoint called the Exponential Roadmap which is supposedly telling us how to cut our emissions in half by 2030. Right after that came out in September, Mariana Mazzucato, who is the modern monetary theory economist said in this op-ed, we need to act boldly now if we're to avoid economy-wide lockdowns to halt climate change. And in November, 2019, right after that, the UNEP said we have to cut global emissions by 7.6% every year for the next decade to meet the Paris targets. So this was long before anyone was thinking about lockdowns, right? Mm -hmm. This was the fall of 2019. Mm -hmm. But then lockdowns happened. So of course the World Economic Forum thought it was fantastic. And they said, oh, lock emissions fell during lockdown. Let's keep it that way. And they even claimed that uh, emissions fell by 17% in early April uh, 2020 compared to 2019. So that sounds fantastic for all the people who think that humans cause climate change. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But the World Economic or the World Meteorological Organization in uh, the fall of 2020 said that COVID-19 has no measurable impact on CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. Um, and then they, 
you know, kind of cave and say, but lockdown provided a platform to grow back better and take climate. Oh action. boy. Well, yeah. Yeah. What a bunch of clowns, eh? Um, and we issued this press release showing that lockdowns, net zero and ESG policies won't stop climate change and will destroy lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of our quotes is the fact is the drop in emissions during COVID lockdowns is not enough to significantly affect the increase of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is far smaller than the random natural fluctuations. Mm -hmm. So uh, don't let your climate friends tell you that we should lock down again to save the planet. Yeah. And but the true. only, organ the only organization that celebrated lockdowns was the World Economic Forum. Of course. And this was a disgusting little video. There was such an outcry that they actually pulled it. Hmm. Now, during lockdowns, you were under purposeful surveillance. Here in Canada, in the UK, some places in the US, so we know Canada's National Police Force were using spyware. Um, the Public Health Agency tracked 33 million mobile devices. Mm -hmm. So, um, and there were also all kinds of nudge units and psychological behavioral psychology units working to get people to comply with various aspects of lockdown. And in the UK, they even have this big book of net zero principles for successful behavior change initiatives because what they're trying to do is make everyone feel that they're personally responsible for climate change that's right and if you feel guilty then you will not drive your car you won't buy an avocado yeah. you won't have a steak yeah. uh, which reminds me i'd love to have a steak after this and <laughs> uh, you know so you'll you'll take these measures because of this nudge 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 psychology but these won't be your actual personal choices mm -hmm. you know you're being manipulated now i don't know if people remember but google had an offshoot company or actually it was alphabet called sidewalk labs and they were going to build a smart city in toronto um i don't know do do people I, remember that? i don't remember that no okay well um, they had a lot of problems trying to get it together. Like it was about a hundred and no, what was it? 12 acres of land. Yeah. And, um, the problem was like, it was a smart city and it would be a 15 minute city, uh, and very cool, you know, with all kinds of internet of things and yeah. blah, blah, blah. But the big sticking point was privacy and data. Oh yeah, know? sure. They just couldn't, uh, none of their policies met the privacy laws of Canada. Yeah, and and this is a very good book which I just read um, by a uh, Globe and Mail journalist who wrote about the problems that they had in getting the thing together. Now this was cancelled in May 2020. The project was abruptly cancelled, so uh, they claimed that COVID was the issue. Hmm. Uh, these are some of the privacy issues, and this these privacy issues would be real issues in any smart city, 15 minute city as well. Yeah. Um, so surveillance from the state and surveillance capital, capitalism, that's where uh, stores or corporations can use your data mm -hmm. for their uh, own ends, whether they be profitable or just to spy on you. Collection without valid consent, excessive collection of personal data, uh, risk of a data breach, uh, data monetization, 
lack of anonymity for differently abled persons because when you collect data, even if you anonymize it, you can apparently also reverse engineer it. So oh. it would be quite easy to say, oh, well, actually, the only person who uses a wheelchair ramp is that person, you know, That's or true. whatever the case may be. Yeah. Loss of data sovereignty, and that was kind of an international issue between Canada and the states. And uh, so the conclusion was that there's no social license without addressing privacy, privacy risks. Um, now, just before we go a bit further, we should remember that as of March 19th, 2020, COVID was not considered a high consequence infectious disease in the UK, meaning that theoretically there shouldn't have been a need for a lockdown. Mm -hmm. But Professor Lockdown and his scary COVID modeling opened the door to the Biomedical Surveillance Society mm -hmm. and emergency health edicts suspended normal civil privacy and charter rights. So all the things that Sidewalk Labs was tripping over all the time were wiped out of the way for big government <laughs> by the emergency acts, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, that surveillance and all that authority went right out the window, um, all, the, all of our rights. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also important to note that in September of 2021, which was about uh, four months, five months before the Freedom Convoy, in the French press in Canada, in Quebec, uh, plans were floated for Emergency Measures Act for climate change. And they wanted to relate the fight against climate change and apply the fight to, uh, sorry, against COVID and apply those same principles to climate change. So um, they thought they could have uh, curfews, telework, border closures, and uh, the pandemic has demonstrated that we can take rapid and radical measures. But and is it a climate emergency? And people will comply. That's all I was going to say. Yes. Right? yes. And regarding the one or two degrees Celsius delusion, yeah. this is the nephew of William Nordhaus, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist. Um, he was the one who first proposed the two degrees Celsius target. But he just did it arbitrarily 40 years know. ago. Yeah. <laughs> just like six feet is just an arbitrary number. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's crazy to think that we're setting trillion dollar policy yeah. on these arbitrary figures. Yeah. And we claim that we don't want to go above 1.5 degrees Celsius. But actually, back in the day when James Hansen made his grand speech in the U.S. in 1988, when this all began, yeah. he claimed the temperature was 15 degrees Celsius. Well, look at that. Looks yeah. like it's gone down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So what's going on? Well, let's look and see it. some other things. Things that we do talk about, blah, blah, blah. Our house is on fire, Greta. Yeah. And things that we don't talk about. We don't talk about net zero 2030. Is that climate or is it demography? Because in 2008, the first boomers reached the age of 62. And the last of them reached retirement age in 2031. Mm -hmm. Net zero 2050. Is it climate or is it a pension and employment crisis? Mm -hmm. So in the U.S., um, baby boomers made up about 22% of the U.S. population. But by 2054, 
uh, they'll account for less than 2% of the population. But during that period of time from 2030 to 2050, they will be drawing heavily on the healthcare industry. Yes, yeah. Right? Yeah. And they won't be contributing to the tax pool or in a very limited way. That's because right. Because they won't be working. Most of them won't be working anymore. Yeah. Um, and in Canada, um, from 2021, uh, boomers represent 24.9% of the Canadian population uh, compared with 41% when in 1966. Yeah. Here it is. Yeah. So this is going to be a significant shift in society. Now, one thing we don't talk about is the likelihood of COVID lockdowns not being for our health, but in fact, as a cover for global economic collapse. And this is a quote from an article. Here's the article link. This is by Henri Lepage. He's a French economist, a very well-respected guy. This is one of his most translated books. But he says that on February the 20th, 2020, some yet unknown financial incident tipped the economy into a crash, one similar to the crash triggered by the events of August 2007. And he's not the only one saying that. There's this uh, downloadable PDF from the Mises Institute. Mm -hmm. And they say the great crash of 2020 was not caused by a virus. It was precipitated by the virus and made worse by the crazed decision of governments around the world to shut down business and travel. But it was caused by economic fragility. Wow. Yeah, because we've basically been told that, you know, in February and March of 2020, the reason everything shut down was because of the virus. Yeah. Well, these people hold a completely different view. And they say, you know, they concede that it may have added yeah. to the collapse. Yeah. It may have triggered the collapse, but it, uh, the collapse was there. And it was already happening in the fall of 2019 wow. because uh, the overnight, what they call the repo market, uh, no, nobody wanted to cover the gap between banks, which yeah, is explained right. further in that anatomy of a, 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 yeah. of a crash. Yeah. So, you know, lockdowns and cell phone surveillance gave governments unprecedented data. So it was uh, governments likely using AI were able to see what and who were necessary or unnecessary. They could see what and who, what kind of people or personalities complied with restrictions, who rejected it or fought back. Mm -hmm. The biomedical vax port was introduced. Uh, and most cities introduced 15-minute contact uh, concepts. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know uh, how many of our viewers live in cities, but maybe you can remember. Um, I'm in Calgary. I remember they blocked off most of um, 8th Street. That's uh, right. Yeah. And, yep. uh, you know, you could... Uh, skate board yeah. down 8th street there are a lot of um restaurants uh, you know big open air yeah. uh outdoor seating yeah. um they instituted these fire pits yeah. you know to try and create this sort of cozy neighborhood thing uh actually they're the one of the worst emitters of noxious yeah. air but yeah. <laughs> who cares so yeah. you have to realize that cities have huge pension funds and municipal bonds which likely suffered big hits during the unspoken of economic mm -hmm. crash yeah. now uh, again i'm not a market expert on this so that's a speculative comment on yeah. my part yeah, yeah. 
but uh, maybe some of the viewers have more insights they could offer us. That's a very interesting so, take on it for sure. And and you're right, because I remember when they did shut down Stephen Avenue and then they even shut down uh, one of the lanes for Memorial Drive. Right. And and I remember like it was it was horrible to drive down Memorial, so you totally avoided that because you'd have people riding their bikes and walking, and I mean it was great for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it, it's those were people that just wanted to get out of their houses and just get some fresh air. This mm -hmm. was not the idea of the 15-minute city where I have to go into my dentist or I have to go to get groceries and they all have to be within walking distance because the shutdown memorial wouldn't have made any sense at that point because right. really, there's nothing along memorial other than a park. But that's part of the 15-minute city yeah. is that you have access to green space. And also, oh, yes, yes. as you'll see, uh, yeah. they gut the yeah. traditional structure of city streets and avenues. Yeah, okay. So, you know, is there a practical rationale for 15-minute cities? Because I have to say, you know, in some of the comments, um, I have been accused of, <laughs> you know. I should get my tinfoil. I got to get my tinfoil. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So, but, you know, there probably is in some cities, in some cities, it, uh, it does make sense. And some cities already have it. Uh, like I would say my area of Bankview Beltline, yeah, yeah. because it is high density, yeah. you know, that is a, a walkable neighborhood. It is a 15 minute city yeah. within yeah. a city, yeah. um, you know, but you're not restricted. I mean, obviously, you know, I can go to Chinook. That's right. Uh, I can yeah. go up to Westbrook. I can go up yeah. uh, 14th Street, you know, John Laurie Boulevard, whatever. That's so, right. it, you know, a very good, easy access out of that area if I want to drive or take yeah. the bus. Yeah. Um, but anyway, let's look here. So 15-Minute City was Amarjeet Sohi's election platform for Edmonton. But now it's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which true. is really funny. Well, um, didn't a lot of these 15-minute uh, city uh, sort of concepts take place like, you know, five, ten years ago? Like when they were actually even talking about them? So, Yeah, no, it developed uh, in Europe, actually, and we'll yeah. get into that in a minute. Okay. Okay. But I, I love this. Uh, I don't know how many people follow Marty uh, up north <laughs> on Twitter, but I love this. If you want to experience a 15-minute city... One where everything is 1.5 kilometers from everything. Just move to any small town in Alberta, Saskatchewan, yep. or even Ontario. Sell yep. your car and walk everywhere. You won't last two weeks and you'll be back. You'll yep. be crying to go back yep. to the big city. Yep. Just just like mere Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. So now you may wonder, well, why are cities such a big deal? Well, here's Mayor Don Iveson tells the UN conference that cities can fight climate change alone. That means that all you people who live in cities, you are now climate change warriors, whether you want to be yeah. or not. Yeah. And he said that they have an influence over half of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions. And here he is riding his bike to work in the middle of winter mm -hmm. when he was still in office. And here is his successor, Amarjeet Sohi and uh, Catherine McKenna uh, flying to uh, COP27. They look yeah. like they're having a good time. Yeah. Anyway, so the 15-minute city really goes also hand-in-hand hand with the smart city, yeah. where yeah. these fourth industrial revolution concepts are intertwined, where we have the Internet of Things, a digital surveillance society, robocops, robodogs, yeah. automatic mm -hmm. waste disposal, pay-per-waste disposal, yeah. self-driving car shares, 
and big data for better efficiencies. All of this was sort of bound up in the smart city idea for sidewalk labs. And right now, the pitch for 15-minute cities is that before the recent lockdowns, we led hectic lives, mm -hmm. as if everybody got a vacation <laughs> during lockdowns. You know, it's really unbelievable what they try and sell people. And now they're saying, what if we could create a new normal? Well, a lot of people like the old normal. Mm -hmm. But here's part of the plan of... Uh, cities, and you'll see how this relates like to lockdowns where they blocked off streets. So the current model is this grid of crisscrossing streets. Yeah, and cool. what they basically do is they want to gut uh, a lot of that road activity and those roads, turn them into walking spaces, green spaces, pedestrian malls, uh, maybe some kind of a craft fair, that kind of thing. Um, and make it all, you know, walkable or active transport, as they like to call it. And the core principles is that every neighborhood would have easy access to goods and services, groceries, fresh food, and health care. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's a surprise because we don't have enough health care. Already. Yeah, in. right now. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how are you going to do that in every neighborhood? Yeah. Um, and they... They have rather utopian ideas about uh, different housing types, affordability, all kinds of households, uh, and enable people to live closer to where they work. Well, you know, some people live in the north end of Calgary and work in the south end. Yes, That's do. just how it worked out. Yeah. So what are they planning that the work should move there? Are they planning that you should have mandatory um, telework? Yeah. Um, you know, or are you planning that you have to move closer to your work and live in a pod? I yeah. mean, that was one of the one of the rejected factors in the sidewalk labs proposal is that um, the people assessing their plan said at one point that the size of the apartments that they were going to offer yeah. were basically uninhabitable. They were too small. Too small. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And just imagine living in a micro condo during a lockdown. Yeah. And and lots of people did. Yes. Know, three and 500, suffered. 500 square feet. Oh, that, I, I would have gone bonkers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and here uh, lockdowns proved out this for IR remote work concept, you know, so yeah. more yeah. people can work close to home. And also they kind of assume here that that everybody will get along like it's Woodstock or something. <laughs> You know, yeah. like lots of people, if you have a gentrified neighborhood, which these walkable neighborhoods basically are, yeah. they do not like low income people living there. And yeah. I have personal experience with that. I've seen thousands of FOIP reports, yeah. <laughs> FOIP emails showing that this is what happens. So you can't put that one past me. Yeah. Sorry. And also every neighborhood should be able to breathe clean, fresh air. Um, well, let's see about that. Yeah. So population density is a key factor for a workable 15-minute city. And here we're going to compare Barcelona because this concept basically originated in Europe. Barcelona is a city that's 2,000 years old. It has more than 5 million people in the metropolitan area and yeah. 16,000 people per square kilometer. So look at Barcelona overlaid on Calgary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
which has uh, 1,500 people per square kilometer. And just to give you a sense of the number of people here, not the density, but the number, you know, Wetaskiwin has 12,000 population, Camrose 18,000, Brooks 14,000. So without uh, appropriate density, you can't have businesses operating there. They won't have the traffic. And here... We can look at where Barcelona is. It's a port city. It's in the, on the Mediterranean, nice and warm there. And here's where we are. Yeah. And uh, this book is about a cold welcome. This is about the people who first came, the Europeans who came from Europe to North America and what a horrible experience it was for them. And why? Because people thought it was the new Andalusia. They thought it was going to be just like Spain because it's on similar... Yeah. Uh, latitude. Yeah. But Europe is warmed by the Gulf Stream. Mm-hmm. It has much more temperate winters than we have. Yeah. And um, of course, this latitude is crucial. Below this latitude, this is where all the snowbirds go in winter. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Here's where we live yeah. the rest of the year and yeah. in winter. Climate so, is a big thing. Yeah. You know, that's a big factor. And as for clean air, I took this screenshot the other night. Um, you can see that um, North America looks pretty good and, you know, Europe does look rather polluted. And why yeah. is that? Because they decided to incentivize diesel cars over regular cars because they had fewer CO2 emissions, but they have much more uh, NOx and SOx, which in that European environment, uh, like nitrogen oxide and, uh, and PM 2.5, soot. Because uh, diesel cars are much more sooty than regular yeah. ice vehicles yeah. or regular uh, gas vehicles. Yeah. So here's the air quality at the same time in Alberta. Mm-hmm. You can see that we don't have any problem there. Yeah. Occasionally we'll get an inversion, but you know, regularly the air quality in Alberta is very, very good. So again, these are all the things that they want to put together in a 20-minute neighborhood or a 15-minute city. But, you know, if you're going to have local employment and local shopping centers and local health uh, facilities and services, you need big population density. Mm -hmm. And again, recently, here's this fellow, uh, Shailen Huber, who is a fairly well-known climate scientist in Europe. And he is um, claiming again. Everyone gets three tons of CO2 per year, but if you need more, you, you have just to have it. to buy well, it. Yeah, just buy it. That's <laughs> yeah. So just imagine now people are already struggling with the carbon tax, and yet suddenly they need to buy more CO2 credits, right? That's just imagine right. what happens when CO2 goes up to $170 a ton. Who's going to be able to do that? So uh, he and his group are really into these uh, planetary boundaries and they're very catastrophic in their thinking. So again, we return to this deadline 2020 Mm -hmm. that cities need to reduce emissions of individuals. And there's only one way they can do that. And that's limiting your freedom of movement and Mm -hmm. your freedom of choice. But what else is going on? Well, in 2012, the IMF wrote a report where they basically said that good health care makes people live too long. And they said that unexpected longevity creates pension fund liabilities. 
And they also said that the elderly will consume a growing share of resources. And we did see that when I referred to the boomers. Yeah. Where's my cursor? Yeah. And Citibank in 2016 issued a report saying that OECD countries are facing 78 trillion in pension liabilities, meaning that's the gap where they don't have the money to pay for the pensions promised. Wow. wow. Now, the World Economic Forum and the UN signed a strategic partnership framework in 2019, June, which is about financing the 2030 agenda, climate change, health, digital cooperation, gender equality, empowerment of women, education and skills. So we keep hearing a lot of that stuff in the press. And they also signed a strategic partnership with the OECD in January of 2020. And so that included artificial intelligence, machine learning, blockchain and distributed ledger technology, the internet of things, robotics and <clears throat> smart cities. So the World Economic Forum, for those who may not be aware, is uh, started as a think tank led by Klaus Schwab. It's, it's basically in Switzerland. They also have a partner office in China and they bring together all the movers and shakers of the world. Um, and basically today they rather consider themselves masters of the world mm -hmm. that somehow they've been divinely sent to change the world in their image and the rest of us plebes can just uh, shut up, Yeah, they said. So no one talks about the debt, right, that we have in this country. So pre-COVID, there was a quarter of a million dollar bill per citizen courtesy of Canada's governments. And here the Fraser Institute is talking about the shortfall of more than almost 800 billion for yeah. CPP, yeah. Um, almost 500 billion for OAS, and almost 900 billion for Medicare. That was before. Before COVID, yes. Yeah. yeah. But the post-COVID debt, and we have this on our blog. Robert Lyman did a summary of this report, mm -hmm. which is the fiscal reference tables straight from the government. So um, you can see that expenditures rose by 93% in two years, which was the largest increase in history. And the budgetary deficit rose from 5.6 billion to 312.4 billion, which is an increase of 5,479%. And the total interest bearing debt of the federal government rose from 1.02 trillion to 1.44 trillion. A 1% increase in interest rates yes, would add 14.4 billion to the annual federal debt servicing charges. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have huge, huge debt to deal with. Yeah, I like, and, I like this uh, this analogy with the the trillion, and it's very true. <laughs> if anybody hasn't seen this exact little diagram, um, obviously you're going to explain it. But essentially, you start off with one million dollars in ten thousand dollar bag or a bag, and a million dollars looks like a lot of money. But I mean, you know, you could probably go through it fairly quickly if you're not careful. And so you can see exactly how big the pile is based on the size of a trillion dollars. Like that is warehouses of uh, money. Right. And this is uh, this is a um, million dollars in hundred dollar bills in yeah. in packets of 10,000. Yeah. 
And so then that's just extrapolated here. And you see how, how puny the person becomes faced yeah. by this incredible debt. Yeah. So we have kind of a couple of those, one yeah. and a half of those at least. Yeah. And uh, if people are into numbers, you mm -hmm. know, just to give you an idea, like a trillion, this goes through yeah. what a thousand seconds is 17 minutes, etc. Yeah. yeah. A million seconds, 11 days. Yeah. A billion is 31.5 years. And a trillion is 31,709 uh, yeah. years. Yeah. One of the things I usually say is the difference between a billion and a million is about a billion. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. true. Because there are 999 million, a billion, yeah. a million. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. So what about healthcare costs? Well, life expectancy is high in Alberta and in most of the OECD nations, but it creates a problem of its own kind. So uh, life expectancy at birth in Alberta, it works out to around uh, 78 years old, mm -hmm. 80 years old. And although this is from 2005 from AHS, um, this kind of bump hasn't changed that much. So you mm -hmm. can see as people age, as they get into their 60s, yeah they start to have these chronic conditions that need more care, much yeah. more care. Yeah. And healthcare is the province's largest expense. So um, I can't remember. Okay, this is from 2019. So we were spending in Alberta $20.6 billion a year for healthcare. Yeah. So 20 of these. Yeah. Uh, which is a huge, 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 and that's 43% of the province's total operating costs. Now, of course, we've had this offer of uh, $46.1 for 10 provinces and territories, new money over the next decade. Mm -hmm. So, of course, if you put that in context with our current needs, it's a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. And if you read this book by Susan Martinuk, uh, it's very enlightening. It shows that universal health care was never viable from the beginning. So basically, everyone's health care has been rationed for probably the past 30 years. Mm -hmm. But the 15-minute city promises health care just to walk away. And for this, you need lots of data because you're going to have these little pods, perhaps. This is one solution. Mm -hmm where the patient goes in and sits down by themselves, the doctor will teleport in mm -hmm. and uh, will guide them to use various examining tools. And it's called a consult station. Now this is uh, a unit being used in France. I yeah. can't say for sure this mm -hmm. is what we would use here, but effectively what happens if you have the person's data, yeah. medical records, then you can run it through artificial intelligence mm -hmm. that in conjunction with the technical assessment and the medical doctor, which may or may not be a real doctor. It could mm -hmm. also be a deep An AI. doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, you would get some kind of assessment and subsequently a prescription and some kind of care. Yeah. So 
And even even for that, uh, I, I used to actually work for a military contractor back in the late 90s, early 2000s. We were actually working on a project for telemedicine, which is mm -hmm. exactly what that was. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, we were still looking. We weren't LCD TVs and stuff hadn't even come out yet. So they were still the big bubble CRTs. And uh, and everything was built on old technology. Like uh, if anybody remembers the pre-Pentium computer years, 386s, uh, that sort of thing, like like they were giant things mm -hmm. uh, and of course now with the technology that it is and you could probe yourself if you had to i guess it that part does make sense and a lot of these concepts do make sense mm -hmm. right it's just that like they're great ideas until they're not so good ideas right because you know who programs that ai that's right what happens if people say you know what everyone who's over the age of 65 we're going to give them a special diagnosis. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. and uh, and y y y there's no one accountable yeah. in that case. You know, it's not like when a doctor makes a mistake and God forbid you go into surgery and they cut off your right leg and not your left. Um, yeah. You know, uh, then you there is some recourse. But, yeah. you know, when it's a machine, there's no recourse. And um, so again, I, I agree with you. I'm not discounting that these could be good ideas, yeah. but we are not being consulted as individuals. No, we are not. And if our health data is being handed over, yeah. what else is happening with it? That's right. Um, because obviously we are facing a financial crisis. We're facing a boomer healthcare crisis mm -hmm. yeah. and we don't have the facilities and no one's talking about it. Mm -hmm. You see, I mean, people are talking like, you know, healthcare is in trouble, the system's collapsing, right? Okay, but nobody's talking about these kind of larger issues. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, what these webinars with APP are, are doing is it's not just one thing that's going wrong. It's like, it's this mesh of stuff. And, mm -hmm. and, and especially the way you're presenting this one, for sure. I mean, it's not just one problem. You will see how they all kind of fit together in the end. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the legacy of lockdowns is that lockdowns killed many people. Yes, they did. This is the Deloitte report. Yeah. So I'm not making up any of this. Yeah. And many more people, because of the delayed treatment, will either die prematurely or yeah. they will choose made over their pain. Yeah. So, I mean, will the government pat itself on the back and say, at least we gave them a way out? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, people have been paying into healthcare for decades, anticipating that when the time came, they, yeah. that there would be help for them yeah. and that they would be deserving of that care because it was universal. Yeah. And now that's shown to be impossible yeah. for most people. So again, uh, you know, the fourth industrial revolution relies heavily on digitization of society and uh, digital ID ties in with your healthcare, your financial services, food and sustainability, travel and mobility. So that would be like the VAX port that was yeah. tested during yeah. lockdowns. Yeah. Humanitarian response. This might be the only place where it would make sense if you were, you know, a nation of, uh, of, of poor people and the, like in Turkey where the huge yeah. earthquake yeah. struck, where, you know, you actually could help people because they had a digital ID, you could help restore their real yeah. life. Yeah. But, um, you know, that won't exist for those people for the most part. E-commerce, social platforms, e-government, yeah. telecommunications, uh, 
to own and use um, devices and telecommunications to um, monitor devices. So, yeah. you know, all this would be tied together. Um, and there are lots of cities in Canada that have been participating in this uh, contest that the government was running to award uh, 5 million, 10 million or 50 million prizes to smart city applicants. Yeah. Well, we've, we've seen people in, uh, <laughs> in a situation where they're offered something for free or offered maybe a hundred dollars or maybe you could possibly win a lottery. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and also, I mean, why did most people get the vaccine? Because they mm -hmm. wanted to fly. Yeah. But what is this? Well, it's the known traveler digital ID. Yeah. It's the pilot project with the World Economic Forum, yeah. Canada, uh, the government of the Netherlands, and these airports. Yeah. So, of course, if you make flying miserable and impossible, if you have total chaos in the airport, yeah. and then you promise people something like this, that will make things go fast and smooth. Oh, I'll sign up for that. Sure. It sounds so easy. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, again, all your data is there. Yeah. And who has access to it? Well, now, you know, what's the what's the privacy order here? Yeah. yeah. Who you mean all these people, all these groups have access to it? Yeah. Like we don't know. Is that clear? Yeah. And of course because things are being digitized, well, many corporations see a great opportunity there. Again, the World Economic Forum in 2018 on the threshold of a digital identity revolution. Mm -hmm. And voila, here's Interact, yeah. <laughs> ready yeah. to hop in with yeah. digital ID for healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> so, and again, what was that? The advent of the COVID pandemic, a new moment of change has been thrust upon us, right? So. Uh, again, this is, you know, they don't want you to use cash. They want you to tap, right? Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. And so what does that lead to? It also leads to central bank currency, digital currency for Canada. And this is from the uh, Bankers Association of Canada. Yeah. Um, and they're saying that the rationale is that the day may come when Canadians can no longer readily use cash for everyday transactions. So, uh, like, I think that's silly because, you know, if I have cash, if I have $20 bill. This note is legal tender. That's right. This so note is not. legal tender. And yeah. if all the power goes out, if we have a big blackout, a big snowstorm or something, yeah. this is still legal tender yeah. and I can do business with it. Yeah. And in fact, the fellow who wrote this book, um, which I'll refer to later, Cloud yeah. Money, yeah. Um, he writes about how before hurricanes down in the southern states, for instance, yeah. people would go to the ATM and take out a lot of cash. Because they knew. Know yeah. that for the next week or two, all yeah. the Interact the services will be down, their cards won't work, and That's they right. will still have to buy food and gas and yeah. you know keep their families going. Yeah. So cash is the ultimate resilient thing. Um, so why would we not be able to use cash for everyday transactions? Yeah. And then, of course, they say, oh, well, you know, you could use a mobile phone or a special card or device. Yeah. And there's a rather sickening video online with this yeah. fellow, August Karstens, who's yeah. with the Bank of International Settlements, where he's talking about how 
they don't like the idea of people using cash because they don't know what you're doing with it. Now, wow. you know, he wants to know what burger I'm buying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He wants a bite. <laughs> I, want a, I want a receipt for that donut I bought. Yeah. But that's it. I mean, um, obviously, there are some concerns about, say, international terrorism and all that. But there are many different um, orders of, uh, of uh, security in place already. I mean, we've got yeah. FinTrack and all these other groups yeah. who do nothing but track these transactions. Yeah. yeah. So my $10 isn't such a big deal when I buy a burger. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the problem is that many young people will love this idea of the um, digital currency and everything's on your card and your digital ID. Yeah. So they will see the convenience. It's total convenience, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, having watched what happened to the Freedom Convoy and those of you who may have been directly affected by it, yeah. you know, frozen funds. Yeah. Access to your money can be turned off. Every transaction documented. Yeah. Social credit scores. Yeah. Uh, vulnerability to state and foreign actors. Yeah. <clears throat> Banks have control over every penny you own. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, they do now. It's in your account. But, you know, it's all a paper trail and you deal there with a person. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're if the central bank is some other place yeah. and suddenly your account is shut off, let's say even a case of mistaken identity, what do you do? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. No recourse. So you have zero privacy. Uh, you might have a cyber attack. You have no anonymity and all your movements and actions are traceable. And, you know, people sometimes say, well, you know, I don't do anything wrong, so I'm not worried about it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if you have a government that suddenly doesn't like, some worldview that you have then you do you are doing wrong no yeah. matter what you think you're doing yeah. in their eyes you know and that makes you vulnerable yeah. um so anyway this is a great book cloud money it has a different cover from the one i showed here mm -hmm. but he um he says don't don't do it don't go for the digital currency yeah. Yeah. forget it and this is just from the internet, but I thought it was quite succinct. Yeah. Cashless society means zero cash. Yeah. So you can't have like, a, you know, a car, uh, I mean, a Birthday car car. sale yeah. or, you know, giving kids money for their tooth fairy piggy yeah. bank, yeah. you know, tipping people. Uh, you can't just sell things for cash off Kijiji or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, everything will be tracked and traced. Yeah. And likewise, I don't know if you have, yeah, maybe this is the part, the $50, yeah, the, how yeah. $50 goes. Yeah, I've, I've read that too, but go ahead and explain. Yeah, it. I thought I also, just yeah. another little thing from the internet, but I thought it made quite a bit of sense. You know, if you have a $50 banknote, you go to a restaurant, you pay for dinner, that $50 remains $50, no yeah. matter whose goes hands. to the dry cleaner, in. goes to, you know, the movie theater, comes back. Right, but if it's uh, a card... Um, and it's digital, then there's always a bank fee or a transaction right. fee. Yeah. And so actually your $50 is becoming less and less and less That's right. as, as it goes through the system. Yeah. So again, coming back to the 15-minute cities, for inclusive and sustainable cities, my carbon. Mm. Yes, your personal carbon ration. 
And you see, because of all the hysteria generated by Greta's um, <laughs> unfounded statements, that the World Economic Forum proliferated around the world through yeah. their trustees and partners, yeah. young adults tend to be more concerned than older counterparts that climate change will harm them, mm -hmm. right? So young people are quite keen to count their own carbon footprint. And in fact, the Royal Bank now has a thing called Join Good Side yeah. and a carbon footprint counter. I and MasterCard has a thing called Do Economy. Yeah. Uh, and they have do black, which yeah. won't let you buy anything once you're over your carbon footprint ration. Wow. Yeah. So these things, you know, are very attractive to young people because it's kind of like a video game, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but um, the problem is there's now a convergence of the climate, carbon, and biomedical state tyranny. Yeah. And here are three interconnected examples. First of all, they are now thinking about personal carbon rations again because of the Vaxport. Yeah. The Vaxport uh, created the platform to actually have personal carbon rations. Mm -hmm. And in terms of healthcare, there's a call for net zero healthcare. Um, and they think that they can uh, cut healthcare emissions in half by 2030. Healthcare emissions are about 5%. I don't know about you, but I don't think a half a heart surgery no, no, will help right. anyone. That's right. So what does that mean? It means that now in the UK, for instance, they're looking at geriatric medicine in the era of climate change. Now, when has climate ever not changed? Mm -hmm. This is not an era of climate change. This is just a regular era. Yeah. But it helps people to... Uh, Think about doing bad things when it says we estimate the carbon footprint of frailty, that being elderly people, to yeah. be 1.7 uh, megatons CO2e or 7% of the total NHS carbon footprint. So basically they're saying you old people are using up too much energy. And you know what happens then. Mm -hmm. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. That's true. And so during lockdown um, in the UK, care homes used powerful sedatives to speed up COVID deaths. Mm -hmm. And the number of prescriptions for midazolam doubled. Um, and they have a delivering net zero national health care plan. And actually many of our doctors and nurses are also on this same diatribe. You can see the Dr. Vipond and Dr. Courtney Howard and mm -hmm. Dr. Lem. They're, they're all really into it. Hmm. And uh, it's a slippery slope, people. So reject the new abnormal. This is the advice of Aaron Kiriati. Uh, he says that the corona pandemic conferred enormous power on certain government officials, and they have no intention of giving it up. So it's a really good book to read. I encourage people to read it, or if you don't like books, He's got a number of shorter articles online, yeah. uh, many of them published with the Brownstone Institute. And ironically, of course, now that they're going to robotics and AI and flying cars and drones, the energy they deny you while claiming to save the planet is what they need to track your every move and purchase mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. your personal carbon footprint 
and to use AI to predict your behavior, run your smart city, power yeah. your robot dogs, delivery yeah. drones, and your robot or deep fake doctors. That's right. So that's the we're, grand area. So we're really just shifting our energy use to that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And to all those big tech corporations. And they all love it. Like I've watched a few webinars uh, with uh, people from IBM, you mm -hmm. know, pushing electric vehicles or pushing wind and solar. And they're really into it. And you think, what's yeah. IBM doing there? Well, supercomputers, right? Yeah. Massive supercomputers, petabyte computers, you know, yeah. that yeah. can um, uh, manage the grid functions, mm -hmm. right? Um, software i mean it's a huge huge market for them yeah. and with all the boomers fading away they need new markets mm -hmm. right so and government uh whether it be municipal provincial or federal government always has the money yeah. because they always have their hand in your pocket i was just gonna say it's all our money anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but again you know we're not being consulted on these things right it's all under the umbrella of the climate change emergency but yeah. let's look at that is yeah. there really an emergency well the parliamentary budget officer just came out with this report so um 15 minute cities and smart cities are not about saving the planet they're about controlling you yeah. and i say that because usually they say we have to do these things mm -hmm. um like big climate change plans, like the city of Calgary wants to spend 87 billion on climate change. The city of Edmonton is spending wow. 100 million on bike lanes. Yeah. And they say, we have to do these things now because in the future, the economic damages will be huge, enormous, catastrophic, and it will destroy us. Yeah. But in fact, the parliamentary budget officer did this report and he did two different kinds of assessments. One was that if we if all countries met their Paris targets, our economy would be uh, damaged by perhaps 6.6%. And projecting 80 years into the future, he's looking at a $10 trillion GDP. So yeah. that would be about $140 billion worth of damage. Yeah. So Calgary is already spending 62% of that. That's right, yeah. Um, and if nobody did anything, it would be 5.8% damage. So we're, so we're better off not doing anything. is what Exactly. Saying. We might as well not do anything. Exactly. And so, you know, and yet we're spending billions in the Just Transition document. Yeah. Uh, it states that the government already spent $100 billion on, yeah. on climate change. So um, our president has written a couple of short articles about this, which is on his blog. So you can have yeah. a look at those. Um, and the parliamentary budget officer also said, while well, the impact on Canadian GDP is from global GHG emissions, mm -hmm. Canada's own emissions are not large enough to materially impact climate change. Yeah, we've heard that. Yeah. So if Canada's emissions do mm -hmm. not materially impact climate change, <clears throat> Calgary's and Edmonton's no. emissions certainly do not. And we should also be aware that we never voted for the green crony capitalists of the Club of Rome to run our lives or set our energy policies. Mm -hmm. So they have this planetary emergency plan and their plan is simply just to throw money at things and build more wind and solar. Um, and you should be aware that wind and solar 
they're not really great at producing energy. What they are good at doing is creating subsidies for the investors mm -hmm. yeah. and also creating renewable energy credits, which are tradable credits. Yeah. So, you know, you see that how they are part of the whole um, carbon trading plan and the ultimate plan that mm -hmm. you as an individual will also have to buy and trade carbon credits mm -hmm. probably just to survive. Yeah. But the alleged climate mm -hmm. emergency arose from the misuse of the implausible scenario RCP 8.5. So this is about where we are with our CO2 emissions. This is from 2017, but it, it's on a par. We're pretty close here. And what's happened is that many researchers and uh, scientists have used this implausible RCP 8.5 scenario, claiming it's the business as usual scenario, mm -hmm. when it would imply that we would produce, I think, four times, produce and use four times the oil that the world presently uses and something like seven times the coal that the world presently uses and that there would be three billion more people. Right. Now, yeah. the other kind of scary thing is that all these other lower um, scenarios have three billion fewer people. I was going to say so, that. Yeah. yeah. Population down. Yeah. So what bad conclusion could somebody draw? Yeah from that yeah. but it, it's uh it's no longer being used in the most recent ipcc report as roger plk jr reports or it's it's not seen as a likely future so um it's basically been scrapped and mm -hmm. most uh mainstream climate scientists reject it as implausible yeah. so uh, that means that we're actually on a target you know if we use this as a guideline, we're doing okay. There's no climate emergency. But how did it get proliferated? Well, it's because these guys met with a bunch of ENGOs. These are two green billionaires. They met with a bunch of ENGOs. They wrote a report called Risky Business, which proliferated through the financial communities. And so the financial and banking communities are stuck on this which is not reality, but they think it's business as usual. Mm -hmm. And it was these guys who promoted it uh, along with their ENGOs. So that's how it proliferated. And Roger PLK Jr., he, he's quite funny on Twitter. He, he runs sort of a weekly thing like, oh, you know, here's another 10 papers that are using RCP 8.5 as their baseline wow. and calling it business as usual. Yeah. So anyhow, so... Is climate emergency a financial lever? Well, you know, is your city playing the carbon markets? City forest credits. How about that? Hmm. Buying and selling forest credits in your city. So, you know, when you're dealing in carbon credits, you're really, uh, this is the best quote ever from Harper's. The carbon market is based on the lack of delivery of an invisible substance to no one. Yeah. That's what people are paying money for. Mm -hmm. And behind the scenes, of course, maybe you don't know, and I must admit I'm not a bond market expert, but there's huge money in climate bonds. 
and these are some of the participants in it. So, you know, like all the big banks are in there, um, insurance companies, they're all investing in these climate bonds. And I assume that many municipal pension funds are in yeah, there. Too. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an organization called the UNPRI, Principles for Responsible Investment, which sounds like a good thing, but they are actually climate addled. They're addicted to climate change. They're pushing ESG on yeah. all investors. Yeah. This is an organization of about somewhere between um, 800 to 1,000 institutional investors. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would be pension funds and uh, insurance company uh, funds. Um, and they sit on about $100 trillion in assets under management. And these are the guys who are skewing markets worldwide. Yeah. And why? Well, their fiduciary guru is Al Gore. And <laughs> he's not our friend. <laughs> and here are the six principles that they're pushing, um, which is they incorporate ESG into every decision. They yeah. seek appropriate disclosure. They work together to you know, become effective in implementing ESG. Yeah. They're active owners. They incorporate ESG into our ownership policies. Yeah. They promote acceptance and implementation of them. And they each report. And then actually with principle six, they have another thing, which is called comply or explain. Yeah. So even though it's a voluntary organization, once you sign on, there's you know social pressure within the group. Yeah. And I don't know, but I'm guessing they may have access to maybe better interest rates through some of their investments or through That's, banking. Uh, yeah, that seems what uh, what they say. I was going to ask, do you want to just do a quick little uh, synopsis of what ESG is and how the reporting is done? And sure, yeah, what? that's environment, social, and governance. Yeah. So, uh, you know, on the surface, it sounds like a good idea, like, yes, we should have responsible investment. But it's really become, um, you know, it's really become part of like cancel culture and the wokeism. Yeah. And uh, in fact, um, Steve Sukup wrote a great book about it called yeah. The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. And it's uh, all about political correctness capturing business. And of course, Al Gore is at the forefront of ESG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. see what ESG has kind of done is that it's uh, flipped the traditional idea of investing upside down. Mm -hmm. Usually you used to invest because it was a good idea. Maybe, you know, if you invested in a coal plant, you probably didn't make a lot of money right away. Mm -hmm. But over 40, 50 years you would have solid incremental gain right yeah that's right and it would be a winner yeah. uh, now if you put up a wind farm you can put it up in probably two years yeah. uh, you have flow through shares you uh, they pro they usually split the companies into two or three parts mm -hmm. so the the monies are all protected some of the investors uh, have what they call ring fenced investments offshore mm -hmm. uh you know they typically don't pay taxes they don't end up paying taxes yeah. so there's actually nothing coming into the gdp yeah uh the so lots of these things are being built there is some yeah. economic activity around it yeah. but um but they're deemed to be a better investment because they're uh labeled with this esg you know yeah. because they're yeah. supposedly clean tech yeah 
yeah. as supposedly socially acceptable. Yeah. And then they throw some diversity on the board and call it good governance. Yeah. And away we go. Yeah. And really, even with that, the, like the government requires all these companies to create ESG reports and send them in so that everybody's a good doobie. And, but if they don't submit them in, the government comes down on them and they probably have no access to capital funds going forward so that they, they, they basically are choking the, uh, the company to death. That's right. right. And so yeah. that, that's the big thing that's, that's happening. And I, I wish there was a way, and maybe there would be through an independent Alberta that we could basically say, you know what, we're going to, we're just going to get rid of these ESG reports because really they're not doing anything other than making this giant Ponzi scheme where money is only going to be available to people who are good and doing their their proper reporting. Right? That's right. And when you um, when you look at the states, I think there's 17 um, attorneys general who yeah. are now going after BlackRock. Yeah. Uh, because BlackRock, uh, you know, start was pushing the whole ESG thing and pu pushing divestment. Yeah. And they said, wait a minute, you know, we as attorneys general, our our states have investments in fossil fuels. You're yeah. taking our pension funds and working against our industries, yeah. the necessary industries yeah. that keep people alive yeah. every day that make modern medicine possible. Yeah. Like we're going to pull our pension funds out of BlackRock. Yeah. So, you know, they are fighting back. And um, Steve Sukup and there's another guy in the States called Vivek Ramaswamy. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book called uh, Woke Inc., which yeah. is along similar veins. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, there is a way to fight back. But uh, again, you know, this is all tied to the climate theme, yeah. right? The yeah. whole, e because if you went to a bank and said, I'm going to build a wind farm, they said, great, where's your financing coming from? You say, well, uh, I'm going to get subsidies from the government. Yeah. And then I'm going to sell these carbon credits that are not worth anything yeah. to other people. Um, I'm going to sell the lack of delivery of an invisible substance to no one. Mm -hmm. The bank would go, wow, <laughs> get out, you yeah. know? Yeah. So they created a whole new accounting system, and that is ESG, because, yeah. you know, it's not a real market. Yeah. Anyhow, and here we have Larry Fink of Blackmark. Of yeah. uh, uh, BlackRock saying yeah. markets don't like uncertainty. Markets like totalitarian governments, which is not true. But um, obviously, ESG equals totalitarianism and a social credit society. And uh, Canadians should note that, for instance, the McConnell Foundation, which is a tax subsidized charity, uh, put $10 million into BlackRock. Mm -hmm. um, like I have big questions about that because mm -hmm. basically that was partly my tax money. Yeah. It, you know, charities are supposed to be investing locally and helping people, you know, building hospitals, all that kind of stuff anyway. But, you know, just to bring it home again, the UNPRI signatory, one of them is the Alberta investment management corporation right here in Alberta, mm -hmm. and they represent all these pension plan funds. Alberta teachers, yeah, yeah. Alberta teachers, the local authorities, pension plan, management employees, blah, 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 provincial judges and masters. Yeah. The public service pension plan, special forces, and university academic pension plan. So, 
you can see why there would be a lot of support from government bureaucracies when um, this this is the case in Alberta, but it's the case across Canada. Mm -hmm. When public service pension funds are tied up with the UNPRI and Al Gore is the fiduciary guru directing people to invest in ESG. Mm -hmm. And it should be noted that under the Notley government, Alberta reported on the climate plan to the UNPRI. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they reported, but that might be yeah. an interesting FOIP report. Hmm. Anyway, so um, I would like to suggest if you are interested in that kind of material that people read our reports, this is from 2016 when we were just starting to learn about it, undue influence, markets skewed. Yeah. Um, and then these two are responding to a report by Koski Minsky, which is a law firm. They wrote a report um, in the fall of 2015, basically telling pension funds that climate denial is no longer an option. <laughs> when in fact, a pension fund trustee is supposed to invest money as if it were their own for, mm -hmm. you know, for their beneficiaries with the same care that they would as if it were their own. So they're telling people you can no longer question climate change. You have to make investments based on this crazy kind of Wow. ESG thinking all. And practically speaking, no matter how many times people ride their bike around the city, cities will never reach net zero. Yeah. And there's also no need because CO2 is not the control knob. Mm -hmm. Here are some other things that are recommended reading. One is uh, Peter Drucker's book mm -hmm. where um, this is called The Unseen Revolution. Um, how pension fund socialism came to America. He wrote it back in the 70s mm -hmm. and he foresaw that over time pension funds would buy most of the shares in corporate America. And mm -hmm. that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And that's why we see the UNPRI has so much power because all of their pension funds are now um, activist investors. In fact, in one of our reports that I just showed you, um, let me just see. Oops, sorry. In one of these reports, we talk about how in 2014 they had the Montreal Pledge, where um, these investors pledged to be activists and to get uh, laggard corporations and governments in Canada on board with the whole climate change hysteria thing. So that's a huge force. I mean, they. Uh, NEI Investments, for instance, went to um, went to uh, all the banks. Mm -hmm. They went to Bell Media. They went to uh, Rogers Media. They also NEI Investments also sent a letter submission number one hundred seven to Rachel Notley when she was uh, elected, yeah. saying we represent four point six trillion dollars in investments under management, and um, here's what we think you should do. This should be your climate plan. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, so, and they had about 120 signatories. And interestingly enough, some of them were also people who had funded the Tar Sands campaign. Hmm. Yeah. So this is another book that no one talks about. I think it's fantastic. Um, Adam Harms is uh, with uh, one of the universities down east, either Guelph or... Western, I can't quite remember. Anyway, he talks about how mutual funds 
uh, threaten the political and economic wealth of nations. They have that much power. Mm. So we as voters are really being left out in the cold. Mm. And Joel Kotkin, he's an American. He's written about the coming of neo-feudalism. He uses California as his main example, but he talks about many of the things that I've talked about today and how this encroachment on uh, the middle class is just, it's gutting the middle class and uh, turning us all into serfs, carbon mm -hmm. serfs. Yeah. And of course, the book I mentioned at the beginning, The End of the World is Just the Beginning by Peter Zahan. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very interesting on the demographics of the world and the split. Because his thesis is also that the U.S. used to be sort of the world's policeman on the sea, on the high seas, mm -hmm. and basically this, the U.S. after World War II said to all the countries of the world, "Hey, let's do business. Let's not make war. We'll make trade instead. And we, as the U.S., will be your on-the-sea policeman, uh, and uh, so people will be able to ship things without too many troubles." But that recently, in his view, that that has, is collapsing, mm -hmm. and that won't be the case anymore. Uh, so big changes are coming. You know, the World Economic Forum keeps saying that, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's true, and I've shown you some of them tonight. Yeah. But uh, we're not really talking about them in the press. Yeah. And from our perspective, the real risk of climate change is cooling. Warming isn't such a big deal. Where do people go for vacation? They all go south anyways. Yeah. <laughs> they go someplace yeah. warm, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, the real risk of climate change is cooling. Yeah. And, and you're right, because with, with more CO2, you have more plants, um, and which, again, gets things warmer, more oxygen in the air. And, um, you know, we're better off, actually, that. And you're right. But if it goes the other way, then it's a bit of more of a concern. Right. And so, um, you know, we're facing it confluence of problems. Uh, there are a number of um, astrophysicists. This one happens to be a, a Russian astrophysicist, but he wrote this back in 2016, I think it was. So, you know, please don't call me a, <laughs> you know, a spy. Anyway, but he, he foresaw the new little ice age had begun. Yeah. And uh, this graph gives you a sense of that. Um, you know, so we are going to have a reduction of fossil fuel output because there's an energy gap right now and an energy crisis. Yeah. We're having a collapse of globalization, so there'll be fewer things that we can access and now facing the risk of a new little ice age and cooling. And cooling is not good for food production. Mm -hmm. So uh, the combination of cooling and fertilizer shortages, some of which are imposed and some of them are due to market conditions, will create food shortages. Yeah. Um, and there's also nothing rational or just about the proposed transition. You can see this is from the IEA. This shows uh, the total energy consumption by source in Canada. And uh, there's a very thin little yellow line above biomass and waste, and that's wind and solar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so energy yeah. production yeah and that's not going to flip over in the space of 10 or 30 years it's yeah. just not and you can also see that global fossil fuel consumption has grown in the era of climate diplomacy mm -hmm. 
and we could never go down to net zero in a short period of time. This does the math on what kind of replacement facilities we'd need mm -hmm. to be built on a uh, daily basis. Yeah. And of course, there's also nothing possible about the net zero transition. And mostly the materials either don't exist, the mines don't exist. They take about 16 years to get a mine up and running. Mm -hmm. um, and so this fellow named uh, Simon Michaud did a very detailed assessment. This is about a thousand pages long. Robert Lyman fortunately put it into about 10 pages. But, wow. you know, you can look at this and he just simply extrapolated the global metal production from 2019 to the years to produce the metal required uh, for the uh, transition. And for lithium, it would be 9,920 years. Wow. That's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. So, and he said himself, he said, you know, I've been in dozens of meetings where people have made all kinds of, you know, boardroom presentations about yeah. the net zero and how yeah. swell it's going to be. And, and he said, and no one's ever asked the question, like, is there a material supply chain for this? Yeah. You know, how deep is it? How yeah. long will it take? How much money will it take? Yeah. Like, and all this, all mining, all of this takes fossil fuels. Right? Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. In fact, there's a guy on Twitter. I don't know if people follow him, but John Lee Pettimore. He's a mining engineer. He's worked all, or mining mechanic. He's worked all over the world. Great educational material on his Twitter feed. You see these massive machines, mining oh, yeah. machines. Yeah. And then he outlines the amount of fuel they use every hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we've seen lots of memes out there that, that basically say that. I mean, it's like, look at, look at the pipeline and you don't see a pipeline. It's just a green field. And then look at, look at how they're actually mining for, uh, for lithium for the batteries. And it's just this giant, uh, whatever it is, a, a giant hole, really. Yeah. It's just disgusting to look at. And, you know, and depending on where it is, it's child labor because they, you don't have to pay as much. And it's just, it's just socially it's wrong. Yeah. And yet and those are the companies that get the ESG scores. Yes, you're right. And that's yeah. the whole thing. The whole ESG was supposed to prevent that. Yeah. But yeah. now it's like, nah. <laughs> well, because they've bought, they've bought something to offset a lot of those credits, right? Right. So right. Maybe you they buy carbon credits and then you're clean. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a net zero, which is the whole philosophy. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So ultimately, climate change is cyclical. Now, Greta's book just came out, and her book on the cover features probably this much here. Oops. Sorry yeah. about that. Um, this much. Oh. This Don't much like of the past, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, if you block that off, uh, and you just look at that, you go, wow, went from cooling to warming. How horrible is that? That's right, yeah. But if you look at the uh, last 2,000 years, and this was done by Dr. Roy Spencer, then you see we had a very significant cooling period. Mm -hmm. And then we had a really warm period, warmer than what it is now and quite yeah. long. Yeah. And then cool and then warm and cool, warm, cool, warm. Yeah. So, you know, you see that there's a cyclical pattern here and it's not you. It's not yeah. CO2. Yeah. So again, just going back to the 15-minute city, it's a concept that was developed by Europeans. It may have some benefit for high-density cities in temperate areas. Um, it 
15-minute cities claim to provide convenience and inclusion, but they take away your freedom of movement by car, and they will actually decimate downtown office infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's important to remember that COVID crashed our personal neural maps, our small and medium-sized businesses, and our office work culture. So, you know, it really... Uh, like neural maps are how your brain sets your daily functions, you know? So if you got up in the middle of the night, you probably could navigate around your house in the dark if the power was out, right? Because there's a neural map in your mind. And every day, let's say you go to the office every day, you have an idea in your mind, okay, I'm going to get up at this time. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. And at the office, I will see these people. So you have this map and COVID you know, really crashed all that. Yeah. It really disoriented people. It's almost like being lost in the woods. And so the risk of this 15-minute city, it sounds very comforting, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, But I believe that there was an intention to do this, to facilitate the fourth industrial revolution, where big tech will run your smart city or neighborhood, your digital currency instead of cash, mm-hmm. There will be no cars or it will only be on-demand transit or drone delivery, just like in the World Economic Forum video, you'll own nothing. Yeah. And personal carbon ration will be imposed and a carbon a social credit society. Yeah. So, um, you know, this was a very enlightening book for me to read as well. And uh, the advice from this fellow is be here now. Something um, you're right. Recognize it. Yeah. I think most most of the viewers, for sure. I mean, the reason you guys are are online is because you know something isn't right, and you're looking for answers. And mm-hmm. uh, and if you follow APP, of course, then you're actually you're you're hoping that there is an answer. And it's not just well, I mean, you could say it's just one answer, but there's there's a lot of problems, and can mm-hmm. they be overcome by by one big answer? Well, yes. You know, if we end up becoming more independent and uh, and basically saying to big government and bureaucracy that we don't want to be involved in this we you know get us get us out of this path to basically just you'll you'll be happy and know nothing right like we don't want to be in that situation that's right yeah yeah and so on the climate note just end off just remember the sun is the main driver of climate change not yeah. you not CO2. CO2 is not a control knob that can fine-tune climate and politicians can't stop climate change. Yeah. So thank you for watching and letting me present all this. Um, If you want to join us or donate, here's the information. And um, I thank you very much. Yeah. Friendsofscience.org. And obviously, I mean, you do an awful lot of uh, research just really on your own time. Right. And uh, and to be able to present to this and uh, in, in such a well thought out presentation, I mean, you should you should be rewarded. So if if people do appreciate what you've done, uh, please, there are email or e- well email transfers. You can go to contact at friendsofscience.org and uh, please let uh, Michelle know um, that that you appreciate the work that she's done. And, Thank you. Yeah. No, that's that. That was great. I mean, there's there's there is a lot of questions. There's a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of things. I wrote down a whole page full of notes in small writing. Um, okay. But you know what? We're I think we'll go back because we are like we're an hour and forty minutes in, kind of thing. 
Um, let's go back and look at some of the questions that people did ask. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's that's fair because if you've been on here for that amount of time and you did ask questions right at the beginning, I think we should uh, uh, at least acknowledge that. And let's see, you know, some of these questions may have already been answered. Um, uh, doesn't flying cars already have emissions? Well, you know what? There's a lot of stuff that uh, when they're when they're going to come up with these ideas um, that will have emissions. And uh, you know, we 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 talked with Alex Epstein Epstein on uh, on this uh, topic of uh, fossil future, and uh, you know, it, it does take more energy, and re and really, we should be looking at that uh, using more energy. And uh, and and like you said, if it, if the if it gets colder, we actually need the energy to stay warm, right? If it's uh, if it gets too hot, then uh, you know that's like I said, there there are good things to come come up with that. It, certainly more plant life, and uh, we'll be able to grow more food. So we should be able to have uh, more people on the planet, right? Right. Right. And and also, you know, when you're talking about flying cars having emissions, it's kind of like when they talk about the LRT and yeah. how, you know, then you won't have car emissions. Well, there was a study by the Cato Institute in around 2008. Yeah. They looked at the Portland Interstate LRT and they found that it would take 172 years to recover the greenhouse gas emissions emitted in the making of that short rail line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So there's huge embedded emissions in all these yeah. things that nobody talks about. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and again, if, if you do have questions, please put uh, three question marks before. I know there's a lot of people that uh, that didn't hear that at the beginning, but uh, if you want to put in your, your questions again, we can definitely put, uh, we can definitely look back through these and, uh, and see. Um, you know, some of the stuff that I had, uh, you know, um, the 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 whole idea of the social credit system. Uh, if if nobody has actually watched Black Mirror, which is uh, one of those uh, series on Netflix that uh, I used to watch too when I actually had time to watch Netflix, uh, there's a uh, there's a, an episode on there called Nosedive, and uh, and it really does show the the dystopian view of what could happen with. Uh, with the social credit and um and 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 one of in one of the scenes the the girl wants to go and get um a plane ticket and uh she can't get it so she gets upset and essentially the she uh, her credits get knocked down so much that there's no way that she can fly again and there and there are those types of stories that deal with that right mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you'll find that also in that book, uh, Sideways, where the guy gives uh, an example that uh, in the smart city, you know, a friend comes to visit, but they have to have a special permit, and then they yeah, can't buy food because they don't have the right yeah. permit to buy food, and then the yeah. other guy gets locked out of his apartment because yeah. the power goes down, <laughs> yeah. whatever, everything yeah. falls apart because yeah. it's all reliant on yeah. electricity and yeah. this digital ID. So in your research, looking through these, uh, these 50 minute cities, um, what is your take on how would they keep us in our neighborhoods? Would it really just be, um, they've got, uh, the cameras, they, they know where we are, they're tracking us and they will link everything to digital ID. Like what would be the actual 
end result of them uh, keeping us in keeping us in our homes, for lack of a better word. Um, well, again, it depends on the neighborhood and how it's designed and built. But yeah. um, you know, if it were a modern neighborhood with all the Internet of Things, I mean, they literally could lock down the houses if they were smart locks. Yeah, yeah. On, on the houses. But, oh, that's true too. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You know, but you know, let's assume that they're going to go with existing buildings and not necessarily smart homes, although yeah. that's shown in one of their videos. Yeah. But let's say you have robo dogs, you have mm -hmm. robot dogs um, surveilling, you know, running yeah. the neighborhood yeah. or robocops, right? And, um, you know, this changes things considerably. I mean, uh, when I think of defund the police and that whole big campaign, mm -hmm. I'm thinking, wow, yeah, you know, so you bring in robocops. Yeah. They don't have any moral judgment. No, that's right. Um, and, you know, it's not like with a regular police officer where you might be able to say, look, you know, I'm sorry, you know, my mom's in the hospital. I was speeding. I didn't mean to, but, you know, I really got to, you know, and the, he might have some compassion and might even take you to the hospital. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's a robocop, you were over the limit or you're trying to get out of this gate and the gate is locked and there's a curfew yeah. tonight, yeah. you know, well, yeah be tasered or whatever you know yeah. or a robot dog i mean yeah. you don't need big infrastructure yeah. to actually tie people down and these yeah. are things that we don't think about and on the surface it might sound good and you know actually they have a robo dog already working in new york city i think mm -hmm. and recently they were planning on using robocops in san francisco who had uh, who could use deadly force on people on the street yeah yeah. Well, you know, that changes things considerably. Yeah. But the yeah. these things don't need um that they they don't need a pension plan, right? They can no. work 24/7. I was just going to say they don't need sleep, that's for sure. Yeah. Right. And uh and then you have to ask yourself, well, are these pension funds of the city invested yeah in these solutions as well? Yeah. You know, are they double, triple, quadruple dipping? You know, when they're pushing for renewables, yeah. are they in the background? Are their pension funds through maybe mutual funds? Are they invested in the very things that they're recommending that we buy yeah. for our cities that will put up our power prices for us little people, yeah. but will enrich their pension fund? Mm -hmm. But we won't know about that, right? Yeah. It'll be like skimming. Yeah. There's actually a few questions that have asked about, you know, are, are we at risk of losing any investments? Uh, do you have any advice on that? And again, we are not financial experts at all, right? So right. We're, we're, we would speculate a lot of stuff. And, and I know the thing about government, the way, the way the government works is, you know, people rely on government to give them all the answers. And unfortunately, they're just regular people that are like if you're that if you're the leader of a government maybe you're a minister um all you're really doing is you're relying on experts to give you the the knowledge and then you know basically take a path and and decide where to go and i think that's um something that people should realize that um you know they're they're influenced by lobbyists they're influenced by uh, by these subject matter experts that are coming in and they're telling them that this is the direction that they should go. So even before COVID, you know, people were, were looking at solutions to, yeah, maybe greening a city, maybe making um, 
um, uh, travel less or, or maybe uh, less cars on the road. And all of these sounded like great ideas. And so, you know, you present that to your government official, your city, uh, city official, and they'll think this is a great idea. But now when we're looking back at it, we go, holy, are you kidding me? This is exactly what they wanted to do. So I think it is important that most people do get involved. And uh, and I know there was uh, uh, Thurhild um, County up in um, northern Alberta that basically ha that basically went back and said, you know, we do not want this different land use to come in. And right. then they fought it. Right. And I think that's what people need to do. We've been so complacent for so long and not into politics that people that that had that knowledge manipulated their way in. And now yeah. we're all just kind of going, now what do we do? Well, get involved. Absolutely. Yeah. And not, not only that in cities, especially, yeah. um, you know, cities usually also have a pretty big, uh, family of academics, many of yeah. whom are very idealistic and yeah. utopian in their thinking. And yeah. there's also a really well-organized climate hubs in almost every city. These are yeah. Al Gore's climate hubs. Yeah. They're related to the Climate Reality Group. And then what they've done is like in Calgary, for instance, there's the Calgary Alliance for the Common Good. So yeah. they've got together all of the faith groups in town, a couple of the unions, a yeah. number of sort of citizen groups um, and they all make pitches to yeah. city hall and yeah. you know with a city like your ward counselor is actually in your ward right you yeah. probably know the guy or girl right yeah. you went to school with them maybe so it's quite approachable and municipal governments lack that extra level of supervision that a provincial or federal government generally has mm -hmm. where there's an auditor general you know where there's a budget department a policy department where things you know really have to be kind of reviewed by yeah. more eyes than the person who knows the neighbor yeah so those activists have really infiltrated city hall yeah so what, what would your suggestion be if, uh, I mean, we, ju we just said get involved, but what would your suggestion be if your, your neighborhood or your city or town basically squeezed through this whole 15-minute city and, uh, and all of a sudden they, now you've got towers up and it looks like they've got cameras on them? Like, what would your recommendation be? Just move? <laughs> I don't, like, it, it's such a, a weird, again, uh, well, again, you have to, uh, you know, I think some of the things that people are trying to do have a place and yeah. it's not all, you know, tinfoil hat. That. No, you're <laughs> it's right. It's not all this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are practical and useful, but yeah. you have to understand what the limitations are and, you know, what are they doing with the data that they're gathering and mm -hmm. who's in charge of it? And so it's, you know, you really have to sit on them. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, find out what's really going on. And unfortunately, most people don't have that time. People who are working don't have the time to go and hang out at city hall or city council meetings and, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, that's really the problem that these, these activist groups have that time. They have the organization. They often have talking points that they've been given by their kind of higher body. Yeah. Um, and they're real zealots. 
you know, most of us are not zealots. I would say most people on the small C conservative side or the libertarian side of life, yeah. you know, we don't want to impose our view on other people. Mm -hmm. we, we think there should be open civil debate and a rational discussion and a cost benefit analysis. And, yeah. you know, and then we decide. Yeah. But the zealots don't think that way. They don't want to hear what you have to say. They they definitely want to keep you out of the conversation with cancel yeah. culture yeah. and cost benefit analysis. Well, it's an existential crisis. How can you talk about the economy at a time like this? Yeah. You know, so it becomes a real street yeah. theater thing. Yeah. And you have to be willing to to confront that and, and copy what they do even. I mean, I went down to City Hall uh, in 2020, I think it was. Yeah, with a little sign in Swedish. Mm -hmm. And I did a video on the steps of City Hall uh, calling for Sundays for climate reason, just like mm -hmm. Greta Thunberg. Oh, did. yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, you have to be willing to take their um, memes and flip yeah. them on them. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See how they like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so again there there was a lot of comments based on what books did you have and can you do that we're going to put this well first of all number one is um this uh webinar ends up getting saved and you guys can go back after this is done it takes just a couple of minutes and then you can go back and scroll through this anytime but we're also going to put the link to the presentation that michelle had so you should be able to go in and uh, and take a look at those uh, exact books anyways right Right. So that's the plan. So I think that would be a, a good thing to do. And then that way we don't have people asking, what was the name of the book and, uh, and all that. Um, let's, uh, let's just kind of wrap up here. So is there any, any last little thoughts that, uh, that you want to kind of, kind of talk about how, how this would relate back to the whole premise that we do these things for Alberta, uh, prosperity project, right? We, uh, we we talk about you know the um, what what Alberta can do in terms of independence in terms of a referendum. Um, how would you relate that back to this presentation? Well, I would say first of all that um, Alberta is in a relatively strong position because we have pretty much everything that we need here in Alberta. Yeah, we have lots of good cropland, good farmers. Um, and uh, we have all the energy resources that we need and we have money. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of smart people. We have a lot of hardworking people and we have people who love Alberta. Yeah. So they're willing to stand and defend. Uh, so those are all really positive things. Uh, yeah. Up against that, we also have very well-funded environmental groups, um, foreign funded and domestically funded. And um, they're very organized and we're not that organized as groups of people. Uh, so uh, I think the most fundamental important thing is to remember that the human rights, the civil rights that we enjoy mm -hmm. are deeply rooted in our culture back to the Magna Carta, mm. back to um, the declaration of the rights of man and citizen in France after the revolution and back to the UN declaration of uh, human rights. Mm -hmm. These are deeply embedded in our culture and should not be given away easily or taken away easily. So one of the most important things is to stand up and say, no, 
Mm-hmm. So challenge things that are infringing on your freedoms yep. and do it in a, you know, I would say polite way, yep. but a firm way, yeah. like first be firm and then be blunt. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> we're not giving this up. Yeah. Um, we've, we've and I think arm yourself with some of this information um, because it's, uh, it's uh, uh, you know, really a complex, messy web of things mm-hmm. that most of us never think about. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the things I presented tonight, they're not things that I ever learned about in school. Um, you know, they're things that I learned about by following the money mostly yeah. and going, what? You know, it ends up here. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 And for the viewers out there, like, please share, please do share. Uh, and again, you know, we, we do these, uh, these webinars every Wednesday. We also do chapter meetings. We do uh, provincial meetings. Uh, you can find out more information on that through albertaprosperityproject.com. And uh, I wanted to let you know that next week's webinar is something that uh, um, Michelle is probably going to be quite interested in as well. And it's actually on Bill C-11 and mm-hmm. Just Transition mm-hmm. and uh, and so much more. And it's with Chris Sims, uh, the Canadian Taxpayers okay. Federation. And for those of you that don't know that uh, C-11 is what used to be the Broadcasting Act. Now it's called the, well, I guess... It, it is. It's the Online Streaming Act, uh, Broadcasting Act, I think, is part of that. Uh, and that has, uh, which would change Canada's broadcasting policy, and it gives new powers to Canada's broadcasting regulator, along with a lot of other stuff. So, in other words, if uh, the CRTC or whoever is the regulator at the time, or whatever they call it with all their acronyms, if they didn't like what we were presenting tonight, that would be it. They'd shut us down. They could fine us. They could uh, haul us off to jail. They could do lots of things. So C11 is a is a big thing, and of course the uh, the just transition, which is uh, what uh, Daniel Smith was talking with um, uh, Trudeau and a bunch of others. Uh, it's it's basically legislation to help workers in the oil and gas sector move into green energy jobs. So you know someone that's gone through school to be a a pipe fitter or they're working up north uh, on the energy and uh, so now they're going to learn how to do something else that's more green or maybe they'll just end up being moved into a walmart greeter i'm not even sure what the actual plan is but anyways we're talking about that next wednesday so uh please uh please view us again next wednesday and uh so right now yeah michelle thanks thank you so much again for for such a great presentation and uh, it's definitely stuff that People should um, should be passing on and have these conversations with other uh, other people in your neighborhood, your family, your friends, uh, people. Yeah, people in your neighborhood, um, because this is we're so used to not well, not used to, but I mean, the last few years we just have stayed away from those uncomfortable topics. We have stayed away from politics and religion and. Uh, and and we have to get back to that. And uh, and we've said that numerous times that people they just they just don't like the uncomfortable topics. But we're in uncomfortable times, so now this this is really what we should be doing right now. So. Yeah, and uh, just remember, uh, you don't want to eat crickets. <laughs> True. I have mine here. Do you? Little. <laughs> yeah. So you don't want to eat crickets, but um, you know. Rough times are ahead, but don't be afraid. Yeah. Stand and fight. That's right. Absolutely. Good. 
And, uh, and with that, I will say thank you very much for joining us for this full two hours. And uh, we hope to see you guys again next Wednesday. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to all the viewers. Thanks very much for watching. Thank you. Now I got to figure out how to end it. Okay. All right. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night.